that night the city burnt, and the mother church of the city burnt with her. And yet the tower and the spire still stand, soaring to the sky, and I feel that's an emblem of the eternal majesty and love of God. Greetings. You are tuned into the Miserable Offenders podcast. Pull up a chair and join the conversation as we seek answers to life's big questions, drawing wisdom from the well of traditional Anglican theology. This is a production of the North American Anglican. Greetings and welcome to the Miserable Offenders podcast. I am your host, or one of them at least. Uh, my name is Jesse Nigro. I'm the editor-in-chief of the North American Anglican Journal. And today I'm joined by my two esteemed Reverend Canons. Uh, first of all, we have Canon Andrew Brazier. Hey there. Um, and Canon, what is, uh, do you happen to have any uh, new uh, things, irons in the fire right now? Anything that's... Uh, Worth mentioning? Yeah, I don't know if it's worth mentioning or not. This little uh, new hip imprint called North American Anglican is actually going to be publishing. <laughs> Up and <laughs> coming. I've heard of it. You know, I, I don't know. It's people know it. You know, but uh, anyway, it's going to be publishing in the next uh, few months. Um, uh, work that is really a republishing that that I've had near and dear to my heart of getting out there from Bishop John Jewell, his two treatises on uh, both the sacraments and on uh, Holy Scripture. And I'm excited to to get that out. Really thankful for North American Anglican on republishing it. And it really kind of got started with, I was reading a copy of the Apology of the Church of England and was thinking it really needs to get republished. And lo and behold, uh, Davenant republished uh, the Apology. And I was like, well, that's fantastic. And I was like, we also need to get the two treatises out there because a lot of people know about the Apology of the Church of England, but not the two treatises. And there's been so much discussion on um, where we root as Anglicans our faith in the scriptures and what we view about the sacraments. I was like, let's go back to the Reformation era and see what one of the early Anglican reformers says, and let's get this reprinted. And while looking at it, I thought, well, my other publication on family prayer was updating the language to try to make it slightly more accessible without changing the content. What if we republish the original books and then also do on part two the same works but just slightly updated, trying to encourage more people to to access it? So thanks to North American Anglican, we're going to be uh, republishing that uh, sometime later on this year. Excellent, that's great. Uh, the publishing arm of the North American Anglican growing in strength and musculature day by day, or so it would seem. Um, I'm also joined today by the illustrious canon, Reverend Canon Isaac Rayberg. Uh, How are you today? It's just nice to be illustrious. That's, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a promotion right there. (laughs) It's also venerable now. The venerable heaven. Yeah. I, I need to keep a list here. (laughs) <laughs> well, sometimes sometimes these things uh, these things change much quicker than even we remember. So, <laughs> yeah, no, do it doing well. We had a, we had an ice day in uh, in this part of Texas yesterday, and we don't we're not supposed Ooh. to get those. But last year we had our snowpocalypse, our snowvid, as my wife says. And so, uh, yeah, that, that's that is not this part of Texas. We don't do that, but uh, everything's fine today. So. 
the snowvid was running wild in Texas, huh? Boy. Yeah, well, it's not supposed to, but uh, there, there you go. <laughs> you didn't have to break out the uh, tire uh, chains or anything like that, did you? We don't do that in this part of Texas. Uh, <laughs> but, but you know, this is two years in a row, so we might, uh, we might need to start learning how to actually drive <laughs> and function in, in winter weather. Oh, boy. I, I tell you what, living in Omaha, Nebraska, where we get it hard every year, I don't know if anything helps people learn how to drive in winter weather because I just keep telling myself, come on, guys, this, is, this isn't your first time. But, you know, it is what it is. That makes me feel a little bit better, like being down in the deep south. And uh, people always make fun of us, like, oh, you just got like a light dusting. And it's the ice that gets us, you know. We we have some salt trucks, but, you know, (laughs) maybe like two, you know, in in the Birmingham metro area. I may be exaggerating even on that. But that that ice is just like a killer for us. Um, And... I would say probably the equivalent for you, Jesse, is like during uh, summer thunderstorms or in, in the spring, we have a lot of severe weather. People uh, in my fine state will just drive around like there's not a torrential downpour and, and high winds. And it's just like, what are we doing here? <laughs> we trying to get each other killed. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, um, we uh, yeah, we 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 hide when there's storms. We're we're kind of like near to that place where the the tornado picked up Dorothy in the house, you know, and uh, Toto ran for cover. So, um, yeah, there's lots of lots of tornado uh, storm doors around uh, these parts. But, um, hey, speaking of salt and saltiness in general, um, I I noticed that in response to this article that we kind of decided to chat about today, um, a, a friend, Father Eric Parker, posts on Twitter, consider dropping Article 29, and then he has uh, Arsenio Hall doing a spit take. So <laughs> apparently, <laughs> <That's good. laughs> apparently this, uh, this um, article by uh, Dr. Phil Andares, I uh, hope I'm pronouncing your name right there, Phil, called has ACNA gone Lutheran on the supper, uh, which is like makes you want to say grab a rope, right? New, Get a rope. The, yep. <laughs> the pace Picani, uh, um, ad, uh, is apparently, you know, stirring up some trouble. Um, I know both of you guys got a chance to look briefly at it. Mm-hmm. Um, does anyone, uh, have, uh, just, uh, coming out of the, Gates, any any first impressions? Yeah, I thought I thought uh, he he did a pretty good job of um, kind of giving the background, some of the back and forth between ACNA and uh, and the uh, LCMS, the ACNA and the NALC, um, and yeah, so the, the background issues were pretty good. I, I really enjoyed how he pointed out um, that. With the exception of the supper, um, we really were pretty much on the same page for a very long time. I've been going through in our in our midweek class, um, uh, teaching on the articles and largely using Harold Brown's um, exposition for for my text. And that Brown points that out. Yeah, yeah. Brown, Brown points that out all the time. I mean, have, have you noticed that, Andrew? 
Yes, absolutely. I, I, I love, you know, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but we're doing the exact same thing. So I had to get the comment. And Brown does such a great job of just kind of interweaving, you know, what's happening historically when the articles are written. You know, how are we engaging, interacting, reacting, and being proactive uh, with the articles when compared to the, the Council of Trent that is looming large and it is you know, being convened. So uh, great work. I definitely endorse Brown's work there. Also available on the North American Anglican website. <laughs> this this is the self-promotion podcast today. We love it. No, we <laughs> well, it it's it been a while. It has. It really has. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw a bumper sticker that said, love yourself. And I thought, you know what? We'll give it a try. Uh, <laughs> but um, I, I agree with you, Father Isaac. The the um, the background was laid well, and um, you know he kind of starts with the early Reformation era stuff, um, and really goes into okay. And now we, as a province, the ACNA has been having these ecumenical dialogues with the LCMS primarily and the NALC. Um, and I tell you what, I don't know if uh, if this was kind of flew under the radar with a lot of people, but I noticed at the very beginning of seeing that NALC uh, agreed statement, I thought, whoa, this language is very, uh, you could say, real presence or Lutheran oriented. Um, you know, specifically what the Anglicans had uh, agreed to there. And I figured there would be more of a sort of, you know, fuss put up from the, the more reformed side back then. But I didn't really catch a lot. I don't know. I, what are you guys? Did you hear more complaints at the time? That's a good question. And, and I have to confess, I don't recall hearing a lot more. And I think that, you know, for better or for worse, sometimes these ecumenical statements or, or uh, attempts to define where do we agree can just sometimes go under the radar. Although I have to give credit to um, presiding Bishop Sutton of the REC. His memory serves he's the ecumenical officer. I think maybe the correct title. It may not be the correct title for ACNA. Uh, he does a great job, uh, for those of you who are nerds like myself, reading you know reports that are, are made from ACNA. He does a great job of really walking through, you know, who are we talking with? You know, uh, what's being discussed? And um, I was surprised there wasn't more chatter when it was first coming out. But I have to concur with what you said there, Jesse, that it does lean uh, more Lutheran, which, uh, to be honest, you know, like I, I certainly in my own theological tendencies will sometimes lean uh, more Lutheran, but not, you know, write out, you know, the views of our uh, more reform-minded Anglicans, because it's definitely allowed, uh, very much so, and more emphasized within the articles. Yeah, I, I remember, I don't remember a lot of chatter on the NALC statement. I do remember some on the on the LCMS, and in, in particular, I recall uh, 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 Jordan Cooper on his podcast, Nor uh, Justin Sinner, going through it um, and, and which was, which was a pretty historic statement because the LCMS hasn't really been willing to do that kind of thing with anybody, right. um, until, until that ACNA one, which is a couple of years ago. They're, they're and, like, uh, uh, Captain America. They've been frozen in ice since the 1930s. And yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think, I think they'd appreciate being called Captain America. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rather than the German guys in that conflict, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
But yeah, and and the one the big thing that that Cooper talked about was um, was Article Twenty Nine. I mean, that was that was really his point, and yeah, and I think yeah. he concluded something to the effect of, well, you know, on the ground, Anglicans are all over the place <laughs> when it comes to this sort of thing. So, you know, who, who knows what they actually believe about this, which which is unfortunate, but I can see why he would draw that conclusion. Yeah, um, not unfortunate but not unfair in my own estimation yeah, yeah. I, I i think um so these sorts of ecumenical statements being drawn up i mean the 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 question i always have is well what's what's the purpose here um with the lcms you know i i mean there are great and wonderful things going on in confessional lutheran circles um but the LCMS is not really in a position to um, embrace full communion with uh, the Wisconsin Synod or much less the um, North American Lutheran Church, which we also have this agreed statement with, you know, or, you know, I mean, by the time they get around to, you know, kind of giving a, a side church hug to the ACNA, I mean, I think it would be uh, foolish to hold our breath. Um, so yes, it's it's a historic moment, but you know I always kind of looked at it as maybe the more useful application of this meeting or this moment is to see how um, sharing and comparing notes with another church body helps the ACNA shore up its own position on these things. Um, although. You know, it's well put in this article uh, by Phil. Uh, I don't want to call him Doctor Phil, Doctor Andres. That do. um, <laughs> that uh, you know, it's whether or not these ecumenical statements are actually authoritative in any way is is certainly something we can call into question. And that's a good a good question. Like really, with the whole discussion, you know, owed to it to really kind of think about. You know, what is the authority there? And I, what I appreciate about his, his piece, I mean, I appreciate the whole the whole work. He did so much work to uh, to really lay out the history, what's happened, what's going back and forth between Anglicans and Lutherans. But, you know, what is the, the weight of, of these statements? And I think that's how they're typically phrased. Don't quote me on that. Go back to the actual resource. I think they're, they're really framed as statements, but we still have to go back to the formularies. And to his uh, credit, um, he definitely goes back and says, you know, that his proposed solution is writing out uh, Article 29, as, as mentioned earlier. Um, although he, he does say, instead of just, I should put those words in his mouth, instead of saying write it out, but do something akin to what the ACNA has done in his 2019 liturgy of putting the filioque in the Nicene Creed in brackets and having a, a footnote explaining why it is optional, doing something similar uh, within the 39 articles. I would disagree on that. Right now in Anglicanism, we had such a hard time of getting Anglicans to circle around where we agree on our, our identity and on where we find our, our, our formularies and what they are and defining them. I would say while a church can certainly uh, amend the Articles of Religion, um, I mean, after all the 42 articles became the 39, technically 38, until Queen Elizabeth, as he talks about in his article, uh, adds back later on, uh, or not Queen Elizabeth, I should say, but the convocation 
and Parliament lays back out the 39 articles, so too did the Protestant Episcopal Church, you know, certainly edit the 39 articles and technically have 38, 38 of yeah. its history. So, Yeah, I, I think I, I, I would agree with you that it seems to be a little bit jumping the gun, um, that, that proposal, um, even if it's kind of effectively what, what has happened for a lot of us. And I, I would myself instead advocate doing the kind of thing that you're doing with your, your book, Andrew, is really digging into how some of our reformers understood the supper, because I don't think most of our people do. I, I recently, I might've talked about this on this podcast before. I know I talked about it on, when I was on, um, uh, doth protest too much um, with the other Father Andrew, um, but you know I, I had recently read through Cranmer's big old tome on the supper, and when I was asking folks about it, people didn't. It was obvious they didn't really know what he wrote. They had heard about hearing about it, kind of thing. And so I'd like to see us really dig into some of that first generation a little bit more because there's more nuance than it's typically portrayed. Absolutely. And that's really what motivated me to try to get this, uh, these two works republished uh, from Bishop Jewell is because of that. Is that I hear a lot about people saying this is what someone believes and you, you start asking like, what have you read? And it's not primary sources. And for crying out loud, these first generation reformers are the ones who really sink their teeth into Ad Fonta, as of course talking about going back to scripture. But let's take up that call and go back to what are the exact arguments they were making. Let's do the, uh, it's not really heavy lifting, it's just you know the slight inconvenience sometimes of reading older authors and, uh, and kind of, you know, sometimes grinning and, and, and bearing through the way that language was a little bit different, the way they would write a lot longer, um, but so does St. Paul, after all, <laughs> in terms of, of getting their points across. Uh, and no one I've read is as bad as, as um, uh, Richard Hooker, um, as much as I enjoy and love his right. work. But uh, <laughs> it's worthwhile, you know, it's worthwhile doing that work. And uh, I, I felt, you know, like this this call to, um, to really push forward in our own local parish of, you can do this, you, you can read through this, and at the very least, you know, let's talk about it and let's wrestle, you know, with this. So we come to an understanding of where uh, our forefathers came from. I was also. Oh, so, oh go ahead. sorry. Go ahead, Father. Oh, I was also reminded of some of what Laudable Practice had been doing in the last year or so um, with looking at some of the avant-garde um, generation of divines and their approach with Lutheranism, where you know, we, we do see a precedent for this kind of engagement, um, even if it's not in the form of joint statements, but where certain of the, the high churchmen of the pre-Tractarian high churchmen did really appreciate the Lutheran understanding, although they would often caveat that with, well, except for that weird thing they say about ubiquity or, or other things like that. Yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, bo both of these projects, both of them involving uh, looking into historical documents, whether they be official or um, Reformation era or some of yeah, the laudable practice, um, looking at 
people who were sort of the the yeah, like you said, the pre-tractarian sort of high churchmen, and what how they were receiving or understanding the tradition. I think those are important. I was going to ask, do do you guys get the sense that the Anglican theological trajectory of the 20th century more or less left historical Anglican theology on the back burner altogether? I mean, I, I just I look at what's what was going on, and you get like, you know, people I, I appreciate and understand quite a bit, or or sort of appreciate and enjoy quite a bit, but you know, uh, E. L. Mascal sort of like um, championing uh, Thomistic philosophical theology. Um, J. I. Packer really championing the puritans including non-conforming puritans um it just kind of seems like or even uh you know reverend stott and others sort of really putting a lot of energy into ecumenical relationships with fellow evangelicals and kind of almost giving up on the anglo-catholics or you know what i mean it seemed like everybody sort of took their little churchmanship silo and ran away from the rest of of their you know fellow Anglicans, and they're like, ah, I'm not going to wait around for the other guys to agree with me. Um, uh, I mean, that's that's kind of my the sense that I get, and, and it seems like maybe that's why this seems like such an enormous task because I don't really get that sense from uh, you know Lutheran or Reformed friends. I I, I think that their own seminaries and schools were always maintained this sort of strict engagement with their own uh, doctrinal tradition. I don't know, just a sort of a thought of, you know, why is it that Anglicanism and historic Anglican theology is seems like such a dead art in some ways. I'm Granted, there's a resurgence going on, but um, I mean, like, why did all these important books were were they permitted to lapse and go out of print and you know i mean it's a legitimate question right yeah no and i don't think it's just us i mean um you you look at some of that just which is just in the last 20 years the the way that the uh in the reformed world the way that the the reformed baptists and the presbyterians tried to work together parachurch wise all of that was about flushing history um and, and you and then you end up getting people like carl truman saying well you know that that approach to the sacraments from those guys is really not reformed <laughs> you know you wouldn't meet the definition of the church by westminster you know that kind of thing so um yeah i, I do but i do think that that has been something we've done and we've probably done it more than the other folks because of those churchmanship divides and the fights between um really in the 20th century between the anglo-catholics and the evangelicals really ceding the uh um all the territory to the liberals <laughs> i mean that, that seems to be very much what happened for us and you know for the liberals unity is so much more important than doctrine i mean that, that's just that's just the nature of liberalism and I, I want to add, because that's well said, um, you know, Venerable Isaac on that, because I think that the other thing that we, we kind of miss in the 
I hope, and I hope I'm not being Pollyanna about it, but I want, you know, Anglo-Catholics, you know, evangelicals, uh, old historic, you know, churchmen, not, not the, the liberal broad uh, church that some people think of, but for those who have done, you know, church together, been the body of Christ together now for some uh, 500 years since the Reformation, for some 2,000 years uh, as a church, to realize that we're being pressed in on all sides by society, by culture, uh, by our enemy. And we need to realize that what we have common together goes back to those formularies. And we each have different you know, emphases in terms of, of where we lean into our theology, but there's still a fence in this very large you know, farm for lack of a better example, you know, and you may really appreciate being on the north side, you know, uh, of the property or someone else really likes the south side of it. But at the end of the day, if we're still bound within the fence, you know, of our formularies, we are still being uh, still able to do ministry together and do church together. And we don't have to break off into separate, you know, communions with one another. Um, and so I think that what's interesting about this, this article about Lutheranism is uh, I, I yearn for unity. I yearn, I'm glad for the conversations that are going on uh, with the Lutheran bodies and with other bodies as well. But before we could even think about, let's drop Article 29, we as Anglicans have got to rediscover where we're united. There's certainly different emphasis in terms of, of our pet theologies of where we really like to lean into. But if we are still rooted on the articles, you know, on the prayer book, still rooted in uh, not only our, our history, but what we believe, then we can talk to one another a lot better. And I don't know what it is about the 20th century, to go back to your question, Jesse, you know, that really helped Anglicans to kind of split off into their camps even further and not be able to do business with each other uh, like we could previously. But it's something that I think we need to rectify within Orthodox Anglicanism and quicker right. uh, rather than later. Well, I, I, I agree with that sentiment. Um, but to sort of, you know, counter um, and maybe give credit to the author of this article, I think that the internal logic of the article assumes this point, that to be faithful to the 39 articles um, specifically means removing the possibility of a real presence in the elements, you could say a consecrationist view, you know, would be another way of putting it, um, from the classical or even confessional Anglican rule book. So I guess the first question I would put to both of you is, do you think that's true? Do you think Article 29 more or less means that receptionism is the, or, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, mystical presence, receptionism, whatnot, is more or less the only thing being permitted in that in the 39 articles? I would say no. I would say there's more nuance than that. Um, I would say they do kind of discount a corporeal presence, um, they certainly discount memorialism, transubstantiation, 
But um, one, one of the things that, especially reading Cranmer, is that, at least in his mind, um, and I, I'll have to defer to, to Ken and Andrew on, um, on, on Jewel, but for, for Cranmer, a spiritual presence is more real than a physical presence, than a corporal presence, if that makes sense. And and that's kind of why some of those avant-garde guys, pre-pre-tractarian high churchmen, would have said, "Well, we can agree with the Lutherans, except for that ubiquity thing. You know, Christ's humanity being ubiquitously present in the in the in the elements. They had issues with that, but they didn't have a problem with it being a form of real presence." I, I guess um, there's sort of two considerations when we parse maybe the the major differences between a reformed sacramental presence uh, and a Lutheran sacramental presence. Um, one is sort of what is present. Right. And, you know, obviously ubiquity gets into, okay, you're saying that the resurrected physical body of Christ is present, whereas the reformed view is going to say, no, that body is at the right hand of God and... It, you know, the Lutherans are going to say, yeah, but there's the uh, the transmission of properties. And so the, the physical body has everything that the Godhead has, etc. And now you got ubiquity allowing all that to happen. Um, so, but, but that's the question yeah. of what's, what is present. But then there's this right. other question of locality. Is whatever happens to be present, whether it's more physical or more spiritual... Is it present um, in the elements, essentially from consecration until consumption? Or is this, you know, the strict receptionist view is going to be more, you know, this is basically the when the believer eats, this is a presence within their soul, you know. Um, so I guess right. you know, just, just to kind of parse the things out, it, it, it seems like there's... Those are the two things that we have to sort of consider when we're reading through that article. And I think there is a lot of historical precedent um, to not take that kind of strict receptionism. Um, now, it certainly was always there as well, but in terms of the interpretation, it being strictly receptionist um, was was never universal. I, I, at, least, at least that's my reading of it all. Um, and some of this might also be because of my own <laughs> churchmanship proclivities, you know, a am I doing the thing that I get so annoyed when other people do trying to rescue the text from itself? Right. Um, I, th I, I don't think I am, but may maybe I am. <laughs> well, well, and I think in this article, you know, again, just to kind of what this person is saying, he says, um, I'll quote him here in his famous tract 90, John Henry Newman argued fancifully in parentheses, that the 39 articles were patient, though not ambitious, of a Roman Catholic interpretation. Um, so I think, you know, d depending on who you are, you know, and different people have different opinions on Tract 90 and Newman and whatnot. Um, I've met people who were like, uh, 39 articles are a dead letter unless you're going to let me give them the Tract 90 treatment, which... Right to me is pretty indicative of the attitude of I will only even 
begin to care about this document if you let me reinterpret it however I want, right? Um, on the other hand, I'm also willing and even open, perhaps desirous, of a situation where we can understand that article of being patient of a spectrum, not not a broad spectrum necessarily, but a, a an orthodox Anglican spectrum of opinions about uh, the the Lord's Supper, which we can say on the one hand, you know, and laudable practice points out, have existed just objectively within the opinions of seemingly orthodox churchmen historically. Um, but then there there's the question of, okay, but how legitimate are these variety of opinions, I guess? Yeah, and and again, I, I would go back all the way to Cranmer. I, I just don't read Cranmer's approach to the Lord's Supper in his own words as being as strict receptionist as some people want to make it. It's it's a little. It seems to me to be just to be a little bit more nuanced than that. And there's something to, I want to echo that you said earlier, um, Father Isaac, in terms of you know what it means to spiritually receive. And it's really fascinating, like reading through these works, and you can hear people today. Not everyone, but you can hear some people today say, you know, spiritual, and so therefore it's not real. But that's not necessarily how the Anglican reformers would understand it. They would say, no, it's very much real because it's spiritual. And I think you said that it's even more real because it's spiritual. But we don't get into just such a, a definition of, you know, necessarily precisely when and precisely where and precisely how. It, you have the, the virtualism of many, uh, a Caroline Divine. Yeah. Um, that, that is worked out still within a, a very reformed uh, worldview. And um, I'm going to name drop. I'm pretty sure I think that uh, Father Eric Parker uh, has done some some writing on that. I know he's done a lot of work with Lancelot Andrews, but I think that he had made a point about this. It's, you know, at some point um, in an article that he had drafted. Yeah. And, that, and that's why I think when um, kind of the assumption that, Agreeing with the Lutherans means disagreeing with Articles 28 and 29. Um, I, I would, you know, going back to your your previous question, Jesse. Okay, what what exactly does that mean? You know, there's the mode of presence is one thing, but also the, you know, what where it is present, you know, in the elements or or not, and um, that that just doesn't seem to be a question that's really being asked. It, and I would and I would also note that. Um, at least as far as I understand from kind of confessional LCMS type sources that even, even them are not quite sure in terms of when you're not actually participating in the sacrament, <laughs> when you're not actually having communion, um, if those elements remain the, um, the, uh, the body and blood at that point, you know, you know, right. is, is, you know, and, and Lutherans would, wouldn't reserve the sacrament because of that no. reason, you know? Yeah, they'll, like they'll they're, And they're just not sure. Yeah. Um, and those are, and I think that all of this, you know, it really does open up. You could, you could go a ton of different directions on this question. Um, I think that, you know, and, and uh, Father Andrew, you mentioned uh, Father Eric Parker. 
he I, I noticed he commented on the Facebook post of this article that um it doesn't take into account the position of Pusey. And so, you know, I read Pusey on the Eucharist years ago. I don't really remember. I mean, it seemed to me like he sort of it was a, a mystical presence that was consecrationist and receptionist, maybe, you know, if that's one way to put it. Um, and so I guess at the end of the day, you can look at this and say, look, in order to believe in a real presence um, like what Lutherans tend to say, um, you don't have to change anything about the articles. And, and they are, you could, you could say, patient of that view just as they're patient of receptionism or whatever. Um, another view, though, I think is if we want, if we look at the strict Lutheran confessional um, position on this, uh, it's well, quite frankly, um, they're they're so specific in the communication of attributes and um, the attribute of ubiquity in particular that there's really, unless you did just scribble all this out. Um, you're not going to make that confessional Lutheran happy. You know, it's right. Not, right. There's, there's no pleasing without just removing it altogether. So again, it goes back, I guess you could even look at this article and say, is this intended to allow Anglicans who believe in the real presence to do so, you know, in good conscience with, in according to accordance with their confession? Or is this for uniting us with uh, a Lutheran church body? And um, it may be the case that um, our confessions don't need changing for the former and maybe would have to be severely revised in order to achieve the latter, I guess. And to that note, I think it'd be uh, worthwhile to point out that should you make such a change of by striking Article 29, you would actually put yourself out of, well, in theory, you know, out of step and out of communion, even potentially with other Anglican uh, provinces. I mean, the ACNA has constitutionally, in its constitution and canons, and even in the back of its 2019 prayer book, you know, put in there the Jerusalem Declaration, uh, which upholds the 39 articles, uh, quote, as containing uh, the true doctrine of the church, agreeing with God's word and is authoritative for Anglicans today. And so by trying to seek union with one body, which I do, and like I said, you know, hope to see unity, um, you know, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, you would actually be walking alone compared to other uh, Anglican provinces that at least still uphold the 39 articles. Uh, that's something that I don't recall that he addressed uh, in his article, um, but it would take more than just a, an ecumenical statement to, to make it so. You'd actually have to change the um, what what is governing uh, the ACNA and how it defines its own doctrine. Yeah, and I very much appreciate what you said there, Jesse, about the um, kind of the two two possible outcomes. You know, the the uh, helping a more Lutheran inclined Anglican to affirm the articles in good conscience versus uh, actually paving the way for 
pulpit and table fellowship with confessional Lutherans. Yeah, that, that last one's not happening. <laughs> not, right. not, without yeah. us, not without us changing the articles. Put Captain America back in the ice, buddy. He's got to <laughs> sleep on it for a while. Um, yeah, well, I think uh, that kind of wraps up, you know, the, the big themes from this. I mean, it's a big article. Everybody should go read it. Uh, it's at NorthamAnglican.com. I know the editor there. <laughs> uh, and it's called Has ACNA Gone Lutheran on the Supper? Um, one thing I appreciate about this article, and, and I really feel the spirit here in the, the last section is the supper in a cell. And he basically says, like, look, it, what if you're Alexander Scholzenitsyn and you're in some sort of despotic ruler's prison cell and you've got a, a Baptist, a Roman Catholic, a Lutheran and an, and an Anglican priest or whatever? Like, are you guys going to have communion together if you can scrounge some wine and crumbs or, or are you going to say, nope, everybody but him or, you know, and so I, I do appreciate this sort of, um, guttural desire for unity and, uh, to, to share in the sacrament with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, but you know, uh, how, how we get there, um, definitely makes a difference. Anything else you guys want to sort of drop or, uh, you know, make sure we don't leave out as we consider or wrap, wrap up our considerations on this article? I just want to echo that I do commend uh, the author for, for what he's done in this piece. I mean, it's gotten us talking, and while we were chatting, I saw that a couple of comments have already been uh, posted there on the webpage. And um, it's good to have this conversation, and especially to, to drive Anglicans to... Uh, their formularies. I mean, like he, he's honest about, you know, like what would have to be done to appease um, the confessional Lutheran bodies right now is to, to drop Article 29. And by saying that, he shows that the, the articles uh, carry weight or should carry weight with us in, in Anglicanism. And so I guess I'm not trying to sidestep the issue, but uh, I think it points to we need to be um, <laughs> better catechized with our own formularies uh, so that we can even have good conversations uh, with the ecumenical partners that we're, we're talking with right now. And I'd also like to uh, commend another resource um, that really touches on some of what we were talking about on the uh, American Anglican Council, Phil, Phil Ashey's, um, uh ministry there. He's currently running a series where some of the folks that were behind that common cause partnership that eventually led to the ACNA kind of talk about some of the background and specifically how those different, the folks that really approached some of the theology very differently were, were coming together and working through those differences. I think that that sheds a lot of light on the mindset of the ACNA when it comes to this kind of thing. Excellent. Yeah. Um, great recommendation. Well, uh, gentlemen, I think we've, we've done it justice. There's plenty of meat left on the bone, but we can lead our listeners to check out the article themselves and we would let, welcome any feedback or comments on the article or this episode. So uh, with all of that being said, thanks for tuning in and uh, the miserable offenders will catch you next time. God bless. Have a good one.
It was the spirit of our forefathers that built that grand building. I believe that that spirit is with us still and will help us to, to rebuild it one day when we've served and suffered a while, a little longer. Build it again to the, to the glory of, of Jesus Christ. Miserable Offenders is a production of the North American Anglican. Learn more at n-o-r-t-h-a-m-anglican.com.